This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Shut up and sit down. Hello and welcome again to another Bowhunter Chronicles podcast uh, here with Adam and John. And uh, today we're going to talk about something a little bit different, or maybe not that different. We're going to talk about something we don't know anything about. <laughs> <laughs> so um, John and I have decided that uh, we're going to jump headfirst into a do-it-yourself um, backcountry elk hunt in Idaho. And um, so right now we're kind of just scrambling on trying to get as much information um, as we can. Uh, planning first week of September, so we've got some time, and uh, so we've got my buddy Mark here with us. Um, Hello. He's uh, he, he's not been to uh, Idaho, but he's done a couple of trips out west to Colorado. Uh, same thing, over-the-counter tags. Um, one was a, a tent camping trip, and the other was, you know, kind of... Yeah, two tent camping trips and uh, one staying at a house. They are draw tags, though. They're oh, okay. They're not over-the-counter. Okay. All right. Well, I guess I know even less than I thought. I did. Um, so, so John, how did we arrive at this point? Because you know, Mark had asked me many times. You know, do you want to go out to Colorado? Do you want to go out to Colorado? Do you want to go elk hunting? And it was it was never a thing for me. And then I think maybe he was a little surprised this year when I said, "Hey, I'm I'm going to do an elk hunt." Yeah, ready <laughs> so, to go. Well, I think uh, I mean it's always kind of been one of my interests, but. Uh, last year, after doing like the um, total archery challenge and doing those kinds of shoots, that was kind of what started. And then when I went out to Montana uh, in August, uh, my buddy lives out there in Bozeman, and he brought us out and seen a bunch of elk. And I'm like, nah, I, I'm coming out here and white-tailed deer and antelope. And I was like, I want to tag for everything. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, that's a little bit far-fetched, but. Montana, I originally was talking to Eddie, and he, he used to elk hunt in Mon, Montana and in 
uh, Colorado. So he uh, he was like, yeah, come out. We'll go elk hunting. And then there was a bunch of other people that were going to go and stuff. But then I started talking to you, and it's like, you know, that's a draw tag. Uh, it's more expensive. And then. Yeah, I'd, so so with with Idaho, John was talking about it. And I said, well, you know, there's a guy that comes into work. And uh, I know he's been out there, and he, he's he got some some land out in Idaho. And, I, you know, I don't I guess he's a resident out there now that I've come come to find out and uh i just mentioned it to him and i had told john i said you know this year is is pretty much out for me i said i don't i don't think 2018 i said i'm gonna start planning for 2019 kind of get my trying to you know get my ducks in a row and kind of do some research i'm kind of a a planner um, in that regard and uh, so the guy came into work and i asked him i said you know if you ever get time i'd like to pick your brain about a an elk hunt i'm thinking about doing an elk hunt and Maybe maybe in Idaho because I looked at the tags and the tags are uh, non-resident is like just over four hundred dollars and then there's a hunting license and some other stuff but um, it tag didn't seem too bad so like I said it, it, two years year and a half you know that I can I can scramble that and he said well do you want to kill one with a bow or a gun I said no I just want to kill one with a bow I said I have no desire to kill one with a gun at all and uh, he said well I'd love to help you out and. Uh, he said, you got my number, right? And gave me his number. And I was still thinking another year. And uh, so he came back in and I said, yeah, I'm going to have to get a hold of you. And he's like, get a hold of me anytime, anytime. I'd love to help you out. And uh, he was so hospitable. I didn't want to let it rest. You know, I, I, uh, you know, I didn't want him to say he was going to help someone else out. And then they go out and burn down his cabin. And he's like, I'm not helping anybody out anymore. <laughs> what happens? Um, so, so I just said, well, you know, if, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Put in the time for work. And, uh, they said, yeah. So here we are. So, and, uh, I, and I met with him and, and, uh, he, he's going to help us out tremendously as far as, you know, telling us where we need to go and, you know, anything that we need. He's basically kind of offered it up outside of, I mean, we're not getting guided. He's like, well, I can, I can take you in and set you down and you're going to make mistakes. And, you know, you're not, it's hard. You're not going to, you're not guaranteed anything, but I mean, I feel like it's a great, great opportunity versus just going out there, um, completely on your own. So, right. Yeah. Well, it's almost, I mean, if we would have went out to, uh, Idaho or even Montana, you know, and just started a hunt, it'd be years kind of like, um, the DIY sportsman, like he said, he's going to Colorado and it was like a learning experience. So we're kind of getting a little jump on the game with, with this you know setup so 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 mark tell us a little bit how i guess how you got into it um and i i guess um start with i guess how you started bow hunting because i i remember um back it wasn't too very long ago i mean we're getting older now so it was you know a number of years for sure but where you were like i bought this bow and i don't know how to shoot it and we <laughs> were setting it up and you're shooting arrows five feet over the target out at uh, Frank's house. And so I guess to kind of take well, us through the whole It was whole actually thing. a little bit before that. Um, so my first house in Grand Haven, uh, Friant Street there, uh, I had a buddy come over and was talking to me, helped me out of my house a bit. And uh, he started talking about bow hunting or shooting bows and archery and whatever. And uh, I think Adam knows me well enough to know that I jump into most things. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. Let me go buy all the stuff figure this out well anyways that friend was you you're the reason that i got into bow hunting 
So I went, uh, there's a little sports shop on Beach Tree. I don't remember the name of it. And I walked in there and I paid $125 for a bear something compound bow. And then you came over and we were shooting. I had a couple of bales of hay and then a target from like Meyer. And we were blowing through the target, blowing through the bales of hay, arrows flying everywhere, standing on top of that garage. And, um, you know, that's kind of what got me interested. And so that first year I went and uh, <laughs> bought a climbing tree stand uh, October 1st. I bought it on launch when I was in Grand Rapids. <laughs> had all my stuff in my car and uh, went out and climbed up a tree, didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I put this uh, climbing tree stand together at work, went climbed up a tree with my bow, and I shot that eight point. And it was raining and blowing like 30 mile an hour winds and the trees just swaying, but I was so bound determined that I was gonna do it after uh, shooting with you that summer that, yeah, I'd, I went out there and, you know, mustered up a little bit of luck, I guess. You know, it was kind of a funny story, though, because I'm out there and my tree's just swaying and it goes up and two trees split off and where they came together was right above my head. And that's all the higher I could get my climber. Well, when it started raining, the rain's coming down both the trees and it comes down to that Y and it was pouring right down the back of my neck. So I was <laughs> frozen. I mean, soaking wet, frozen, tree swaying. And this eight point walks in and uh, it was... 42 yards, 42 paces anyways. And it's just standing there and I, I had no idea what to do. So I'm just keeping an eye on it and I'm watching it, watching it stand there for like 45 minutes in the same spot. So uh, finally I said, well, it's getting close to dark. I, I've been shooting that range. I, I think I can do it. So I drew back and I flung an arrow over there. And I heard a pow, and that's the first time I ever heard an arrow hit a deer. So I thought I hit a tree, or I don't know. I didn't know what happened. So I climbed down and walked over there, and there's blood everywhere, and there's the deer piled up 15 feet away from a bait pile. And I'm like, why is there a bait pile here? <laughs> well, evidently, my cousin was planning on gun hunting over there, so he started baiting like a month and a half early. <laughs> so anyways, that's what got me into the the kind of the bow hunting scene between you talking to me about shooting a bow and then you go out and you you have success on your first time you kind of you're hooked yeah that's a that's a rare occasion <laughs> <laughs> well i mean I, and you just climb a tree next to a bait ball i guess it's that easy <laughs> <laughs> oh man when i when i got over there i i walked up and i got to where the thought the deer was standing and i saw that bait and I started freaking out. I'm like looking in all the trees around me, thinking that there's going to be a hunter there. Like I just shot a deer off of somebody else's bait pile and he's going to be sitting out there, but there wasn't anybody there. So <laughs> cousin Eric was pretty, uh, less than, uh, less than pleased that I <laughs> shot that eight point off of his bait pile. <laughs> and so then, I mean, I guess fast forward to, you know, how, to, I mean, I guess you kind of said, yeah, yeah, you jump at everything. Oh yeah, <laughs> full bore, and, and that's a, a hundred percent mark. Um, but so elk hunting, you've got family or something out in Colorado, or your uncles had been going out there. Some yeah, like that. yeah. So that so like every year after that, I was out there bow hunting, and and I was I, I liked bow hunting because I could see the deer acting like deer. All I had done before that was gun hunting, and 
all we saw were deer running scared or deer with bullet holes in them or whatever. And, uh, you know, I really fell in love with it then because I could see deer rutting. I could see deer chasing. I could see deer making scrapes and mating and like everything that deer do, I was seeing it bow hunting. I'm like, Oh man, this is it. This is like really something. And, um, so I started, you know, focusing less on just shooting a deer and more just enjoying the sport and being out there. And, you know, I tried to always get a deer or two to put in the freezer, but just really enjoying the sport. So, um, as the years went on, I started, you know, like a lot of bow hunters, oh, I want to go and do this. I want to go check out that. And we happened to be in Las Vegas with my whole family. And, uh, my great uncle Don said, you know, we were talking about hunting and he was talking about how they go to the same spot in Colorado every year. And I'm like, Oh man, that that's awesome. He goes, well, you want to come out? We go out there for the first rifle season. I'm like, well, I'd, I'd love to come out, but I really have no interest in shooting an elk with a rifle. Right. You know, I have a seven mag and it shoots a long ways, but you know, what's, I mean, what's the sport in that? So, um, I didn't, didn't take him up on that, but I did, uh, do a little negotiating and kind of like what you're saying, strike when the air's hot, somebody offers you, you take them up on it. So, um, myself and my stepdad, uh, we put in for that unit and we went out there and my uncle Brell, um, we went out there and, uh, met up with my great uncle Don and my stepdad's cousin, George. And, uh, we went to their spot, used their canvas wall tent, um, all their cooking supplies and that. And, you know, I, I borrowed everybody's videos, <laughs> all the elk hunting videos I could find. I'm watching them. You know, I watched every Primo's thing that was out there on elk hunting. So, uh, yeah, we, we, you know, took off out there in 2008 and, um, and drove, drove out there and we started elk hunting and we started out hunting the way that my uncle Don would hunt but they're they're rifle hunters so they would oh well we just walk along this ridge and we kind of glass and whatever and um after a a day or two of walking around with them i said well hope you don't mind but i'm gonna i'd like to try my own thing because we weren't we weren't really having any any success we we would see a couple of animals or mule deer bear whatever but we weren't really getting on any animals so i had my primos bugle and i had my hoochie mama uh, cow call and my, um, I guess mouth call. It's like a turkey call. The reeds. Yeah. yeah, the reed. And so I had all my stuff and I'm walking around with, you know, 70 pounds of gear on and wearing myself out. And I started, that's when I really started learning, you know, what I needed to do. And as I'm doing stuff wrong, I was picking out things that I remembered from the videos that I was watching. And I was like, oh, well, the elk aren't, elk aren't bugling yet so it's you know it's probably too early i couldn't even get one to respond to a bugle so it wasn't your technique no no, my technique was flawless and and let me tell you with all my uh driving you know i drive a lot for work so (laughs) that's where i would do all my practicing of calling i'm blowing blowing a bugle in my car i'm doing the cow calls in my car i had a cd that I would listen to them, and, it, you know, it's like learning Spanish. <laughs> you know, I'd listen to it, and I'd do it back, and I'd listen to it, and I'd do it back, and I'd try to match it up. So it was pretty flawless technique. Doug Flutie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
yeah, I, I decided, well, if I'm bugling and they're not responding, it's going to be like, you know, grunting too early in the deer season. So let's, you know, ditch that. And so I quit even taking the bugle out with me. And I wasn't seeing any of the rutting activity that I expected to see from all the videos I watched. So I um, changed my tactics a little bit and I, you know, took kind of a page out of my deer hunting book. And I said, well, I'm going to do a little more scouting and go find the, the bedroom, the spot where they like to be. And, uh, so I went and did some walking in dark timber and, um, a lot of covered miles and miles of ground. And, uh, yeah, one, one piece of advice I can give you is get in shape. So, so when you say dark timber, is there a sign that says dark timber <laughs> or, I mean, you know, we're, we're coming at this from the same, uh, perspective that you were going out there. It's like, you just get in there and you're like, man, this is dark and it's timber or, it, I- I believe it's black spruce. Um, it's actually okay. a kind of tree, but everybody calls it dark timber. Okay. I just um, want to get the terminology down here. Sure. So you kind of have transitions. It's, at least in Colorado, everywhere I've hunted elk, the three times I've hunted elk, um, well, two elk, once for mule deer, but uh, all in the same area. But it's either like a little prairie area, like a grassy area that's open, or it's aspen, or it's these, I believe they're black spruce or dark timber. And they grow really tight together, and they keep their branches all the way to the ground, and you get in there, and it's dark. I mean, it it may as well be, you know, towards the evening all the time. So, excuse me. I started uh, kind of scouting through that and looking for sign. And because of the lack of sunlight, there's no vegetation on the ground, so it was really easy to find the heavily used paths. So I said, okay, mental note, check that off. So I started scouting down, up and down looking for the heavily used pass. And I I found a uh, a spot on day four that they came down the mountain on a diagonal one direction and went up the mountain on a diagonal the other direction and then came side hill, you know, third direction. And it was like this three-way X. And they all crossed in this one spot. And I'm like, oh, man. You know, they, if I have a chance of seeing something, I think we were out there for 10 days. This was day four. I said, man, if I have a chance of seeing something, you know, it's probably going to be in this area. This is some of the most heavily used trails I've seen. Um, so I devised my plan and uh, went back to camp and told everybody else. I said, hey, you know, no offense, but I'm going to change my tactics. I'm going to go with this plan. And so I started packing my food the day before and packing really light and uh you know I'd, I'd been caught out in the cold once went out you know it's one thing to know is you can go out and it's 65 degrees and sunny and you know a, a storm system will move in and, and what what time of year is this i mean i guess what was the season that was september so it was it was early in the season um i believe it was geez Memories failing me now. I believe it was right at the end of August, uh, first couple of days of September is when we were out there. Okay. And uh, it, was, it was right as soon as the season had opened because I want to try to get there before um, the muzzleloader season out there had opened. So it was really warm, uh, just beautiful days. But a bank of clouds would roll in, and it would go from 65 and sunny to you know, raining and you're basically inside the cloud and the water's just collecting on you, not even really raining. It's just like collecting on everything to snow. And then it would go back to sunny like 
an hour later, two hours later, or maybe it would stay that way all day. And the one day I got caught out at it, it was, you know, I went out there in a t-shirt and jeans and it went from 65 down to like 33 or 34. And it was raining, turned into snow. And I, I was literally freezing and had to hoof it back to camp. <laughs> yeah, it can turn into a bad situation quick. Uh-huh. It, it, yeah, I was only, luckily, I was only like uh, two and a half miles away from camp, but it right. it was scary. It felt like a bad situation. So <laughs> I was like literally running, thinking, oh man, they're going to find me out here dead somewhere. Um, so yeah, I, you know, devised my plan and kind of went about it and, uh, started getting up at four o'clock in the morning and just planning on getting out to my spot before daylight. So sat <clears throat> the next day out there, saw a bear, saw a couple mule deer, heard something big going through. And I just sat in that spot for all day. Um, so when I left that night, I found where I, where I heard something big going through, I found some running elk tracks. So I'm like, okay, I know they're coming through, but they were like 40 yards down. Uh, but when I say the dark timber and it's thick, it's, you couldn't see 40 yards unless there was an opening. Um, so then the next day I went out there again. Uh, I think something came up that day. And so I only stayed out till lunchtime, went back hunted somewhere else the uh, afternoon. So now we're on day seven, I think. And I, I got out there. Um, and I got out there before daylight, put on my clothes when I got out there. You know, I was dressed, but I wasn't, didn't have my hunt stuff on. I was trying to keep the scent down. So I went out there and planned on sitting in that same spot all day, just sitting on the ground. Um, oh, sorry, back up to day six, I learned something. And that's... I would, uh, one piece of advice I can give you is be ready to learn and adapt. Um, so on day six, I walked out <clears throat> down one hill uh, that we affectionately termed uh, Mount MF <laughs> because it was, there's a section that's, you went 180 degrees up and 180, or 180 feet up and 180 feet forward on the GPS. So it was like 45 degree angle. You're going up and down on your hands and knees. Um, so it was pretty steep there. So I went down that and up the other side and I got to a saddle and I crested through the dark timber out onto the top of the mountain and in the dark timber, it was like black and I'm using my flashlight and I stepped out and there was a five by five standing there, 20 yards. I got my bow in my hand, my arrows in my quiver, my release in my Velcroed shut pocket and I you know, he's just standing there looking at me, wasn't quite sure what's happening because I'm right in the dark timber, but he knew something wasn't right. And so I got an arrow on and he took off like eight yards or so. And so I'm trying to quietly open up Velcro. <laughs> no such thing. <laughs> no such thing, man. So I got the release out of my pocket, but then I had to un- un-Velcro the release and uh, that uh, scared him off. So I was, I thought, oh, that's it. There goes my shot. So anyways, day seven comes and I walk out to my spot, but I had learned. So I had my release on. Um, I had my cow call in my mouth. I had my arrow knocked. I'm walking out there with my arrow knocked, you know. Um, well, I guess after daylight I was. Uh, most of the walk, walk out there, it was pretty dark. So it wasn't necessary. I get in my spot and I sit there and I'm just ready all day. All day long, I'm just ready. Um, 
cow called a couple times and got no response. And about 8 a.m., this guy walked in, uh, walked right up to me. He was standing about 12 yards down the mountain from me, but he was actually over my head because he was tall. Um, and I just looked at my bow and I thought, man, this is, this is not going to be enough. <laughs> <laughs> this thing is huge. Like there's, there's just no way. And so he kind of worked his way around and started going uphill and I'm like, oh, I'm really going to have an opportunity. And so as soon as he got kind of behind some trees, I drew back and he's working uphill. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to put it right on his last rib. He's quartering away from me and I touched it off and I hit him right where I was shooting and that the arrow went all the way in, clear up to his opposite side shoulder, and stopped. And he took off, and uh, so I remembered all my Primo's hunting videos, and I cow-called when he took off. And I shit you not, he stopped and looked around. <laughs> arrow, I, I can see just the knock hanging out of him, blood pumping out, and uh, he just stopped. And then he, he started kind of taking off again, knew something wasn't up, kind of twitching a little bit. So I cow called again, and he stopped, and he turned around, and he's looking at me at like 50 yards. And I'm like, man, this stuff does work. <laughs> so all my practice in my car helped out. So uh, he went over about another 20 yards. He was about 70 yards from me, and um, he died out right there. Took about 25, 30 minutes. And then, of course, I just sat there shaking. You know, I'm out three miles away from camp. I'm out there by myself in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, all right, now what do I do? (laughs) (laughs) Is this really happening? (laughs) Yeah. So it was a, yeah, that that was a cool experience. Um, Yeah, no kidding. Sounds, I mean, especially since you went out and kind of broke off the norm, what, you know, what your uncle and those guys were doing normally. Yeah. You went out on your own and, you know, found your own spot. Well, in, in what they were doing, it was, you know, I would say probably good stuff for the rifle hunt. Right. Because they were used to, like, I went this way into the mountains because they had taken us the other way and to these prairies. And so you can see 400 yards across that. And I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, man, where's the, where's the pinch point? Where's the funnel? Where's the natural terrain that's going to keep these animals coming this way? And there was sign. Uh, there was tracks and sign and everything else, but... I didn't know where to sit. I'm like, I, I don't know where to go. You know, I can call, but they're not responsive. So that's, that's not going to bring them in. Um, so I, I had to kind of read the terrain a little bit and get something that was going to narrow down my search. Right. Get you in close enough range with your bow. Yeah, exactly. You know, with the rifle, you could easily poke one out, you know, at 400 yards. If you practice, especially if you have a seven mag, I, I own one of those too. So yeah, you can definitely. Yeah. So uh, I've heard the story before, so I like this part of the story because it's it's one of the things that I I think about about elk hunting. It's like, okay, quartering it out. Right. <laughs> so now, gut, gut, gutless method. Uh, you know, wh- what do you do? Do you have game bags? How are you? How are you doing this? So, um, take take us through that that <laughs> process. And and now, mind you, this is a, this is who we're talking about here. So, you, you've got. His absolute first bow hunt, he shoots a point. His first elk hunt, now maybe not the first day, but he's got a five by five down here. So he's just like the 
world's greatest hunter uh, in here. He's going to outline how we go through and and, and we quarter an elk by herself in the middle of nowhere. With with what did they? What? How did the videos help you on that one? Well, uh, <laughs> let's talk about one thing that I failed to research. <laughs> so. Uh, one thing I can say is have a good knife. I I picked up a uh, Knives of Alaska uh, Alpha Wolf and high carbon steel knife, and I tell you what, that thing keeps an edge. I unbelievable knife. I had, I had a lot of knives that weren't up to the task of taking care of a whitetail, and this thing took care of an elk and was still sharp. But yeah, so <laughs> I uh, walked over to it and. You know, it's in the dark timber, and it's kind of down in the sole pocket. And uh, so here I am, and I, I feel like, you know, I'm 6'6", 220 at the time, and I'm like, ah, oh, I'm just going to roll this over on its back. <laughs> so I kind of roll it over, and it's not moving. I try again, and it's not moving. So finally I get everything I got, and I just I, I put it into them, and I get that hind end up, and there it goes over the side. So I try to hold on to them legs, and it flips me right over. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god! If if somebody could really see me, um, so yeah, I I started trying to gut this thing, and I'm I'm in there and I'm opening it up like it's a white tail, and I'm pulling guts out, and we're talking a lot of guts. I mean, this is heavy, and so uh, we had a plan. I think at uh, like 9:30 or 10. There was an area where we could uh, get reception to talk to each other. So we were going to, you know, talk because they were worried about me being, you know, way off by myself. And so I finally got a hold of them and I'm like, hey, I got one down. You know, come down to the end of the creek. There's a creek. And then we had a spot that we had named. I don't remember what the name of it was now, but uh, we had a name down the GPS. I said, come down there. And then there's a trail going straight up. Start coming up there. I'm up here and I'm gutting it. And they're like, yeah, 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 right, whatever. So I'm like, no, for real. So they, um, my dad, uh, my uncle, and my great uncle came out there. And uh, another thing I learned is bring youthful people that can carry a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> so my great uncle got up there, and he's he's cleaned a lot of elk, and uh, he very aptly. Uh, looked at my situation and looked at me and said, what in the hell are you doing? <laughs> so um, he he helped out a lot. So we I took the front quarters off, and um, they had brought out the, the packs, the pack frames and everything. And so I took the front quarters off, and we're talking about it while we're cutting this thing up. And he was used to boning it out. Um, if there's one thing I can tell you is I wouldn't I wouldn't bone it out. I'd quarter it, quarter it, take the back straps, take the loins, um, cut out the big hunks of meat on the neck, and uh, yeah, there's there's a little bit of rib meat left after that, but uh, don't don't do what we did that first time. Um, so we and why? I mean, oh can you, like, yeah, yeah. What's, what's Let the, me elaborate on that. Yeah. Uh, the, the reason I'm saying that is because by the time, so the, the, the whole process, fast forwarding a little bit in the story here, but the whole process, because I didn't have the most youthful guys with me, um, took me about 10 and a half hours 
to carry this thing out of the woods. Um, and that was, I, I personally took five trips and I was in pretty decent shape. So I was, you know, had a good, pretty good clip, you know, hiking back and forth. And, uh, by the time we got it all said and done and it's 65, 70 degrees and bees and everything else going on, um, there were by, by, uh, boning it out, we had a lot of exposed meat. And so I ended up losing a lot more meat than I wish I would have. No matter how clean you try to keep it, uh, you're boning it out, and you get dirt, and you get, you know, debris. Yeah, just just everything wants to stick to it. You might as well be handling a big ball of glue. Um, so that was a really lear really a uh, big learning experience for me, and uh, you know, really disgusted myself that that I had lost, you know, the amount of meat that I did. Uh, really frustrated me, but. Um, yeah, so I took them first quarters out, and so those came out really nice. Um, hiked those back to camp, threw those on ice, um, changed into shorts because it was hot. Turned around, hiked back, um, took another load of meat, and uh, when you bone it out and you try to put it in a pack frame, it's like carrying a, a bucket of water on your back. I mean, it sloshes. All, it's all slimy and it wants to slide around and so it was sloshing around on my back and it was immensely harder to carry um, you know a boned out quantity of meat than it was to carry two quarters that I could tie off and cinch down um, so like I said I made five trips and the, the last trip was a head and horns and the cape and that was my guesstimate was you know 150 pounds um, it's a big head and I, I never weighed it, but <laughs> it was heavy and I was wore out and it was, uh, a very re rewarding, but very long hike to get that all back. Um, but yeah, uh, since then I've learned, you know, on this last trip, uh, did you have any more questions about that first trip? <laughs> well, I mean, so when you guys went out there, um, did you like know, I guess what you were getting into and what were your like living conditions you you said everything was all taken care of pretty much for you i think not maybe on here but you told me before oh yeah, yeah everything was all kind of set up for you yeah so like i said learn um uh learn a lot every time i go do something like that but so we got out there and one thing i learned is you know they have the canvas wall tent and that was awesome and they had hay on the ground to sleep on and they were used to sleeping on hay with a sleep bag on top of it. And that was really hard to sleep on. Like, there's no comfort there at all. So, you know, I slept on that for 10 days, and that was kind of rough. Um, no shower situation at all there. That's rough on me. <laughs> so I would go out and take the drinking water. And at night, it gets down, uh, almost every night, it was down to about 30 degrees. And it was, uh, you know, 60, 70 during the day. Um, so huge variation. Um, you know, I, I I would say I learned more in that trip about hunting and what not to do than um, probably any other time that I've, you know, any other single hunting trip I've done. Um, you know, we had, we had a ton of food at camp and they were used to rifle camp type of meals where they'd make, you know, They'd make 
steak and eggs for breakfast and steak and something for lunch and steak and something for dinner and i had never had so much meat in my life <laughs> so uh there's just tons of food there and it was it was all really awesome you know to have that all set up when we got out there and kind of have a base camp laid out for us um but there's you know from that time to when i went back in 20 2010 um and the next time around i went with a mule deer tag and uh i had made a shower this was at least they didn't have them readily available on the market that i knew of you know they had like the bags of solar shower bags and i'm like oh that's not going to cut it so i took a a pressure tank from like a uh, well and i plumbed that up and hooked it up to my co2 from my kegerator and hooked that whole contraption up to a, a propane grill and so you turned on the grill and got the water to the temperature you want it to be. And then you turned on the CO2 and you had about 10 PSI and I could shower. <laughs> so I was showering every day and that was awesome. That was like the best thing I ever did. Um, but now, of course, you can just buy those for like 100 bucks. So I'd go that route <laughs> if you're going to tent camp it. Um, but yeah, went back in 2010 and just augmented the plan a little bit i was i was going for mule deer everybody else was still going for elk but um i yeah i had seen a really nice mule deer out there so that's what i was after um so went exact same spot i kind of had the lay of the land uh i stretched out a little further i went you know another half mile mile this way another mile that way and uh really felt like i put some distance on um but you know when i did that i learned that my midwest tall whitetail hunting boots were not what i needed to go out there and hike around um i really had trouble with my boots out there and i bought i brought three pair and all three pair were not good for the situation just really limited how far i wanted to go um but i i did the same thing watched a bunch of videos and you know was um getting on some mule deer uh not not the big ones that we had seen two years previous but um you know seeing them so i just kept at it and i started doing spot and stalk and i realized that if i was walking if i abruptly stopped when i saw them they would just scatter but if i kept walking they just would kind of look at me so I would be walking, 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 and I see some mule deer over there, and I'd knock my arrow, and I'd get my release on, and I'm like kind of checking them out, and I'm walking, 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 and then I'd go behind a tree and draw back and poke around from the tree, and then that was like my opportunity, but these, these deer, all the deer that I had done that with, they were looking at me the whole time, so it was still pretty difficult. Well, I took a shot at one. I missed at like 35 yards and I'm like, but they, it was spooked. You know, when you, when you pop out from behind a tree, it's kind of like, aha, right. <laughs> there's no sneaking with that. So I had I modified my tactic slightly and, um, did the same thing. And on the second to last day, I, I decided I'm just going to, I want to have the meat. I want to have a successful hunt. So I, I took a doe, um, that and the, the bucks I was seeing, they were like, immature they're three by threes they're legal but not not what i wanted to you know bring home I, I wanted the meat but i wasn't looking to bring home an immature deer well and that's one of the things with with idaho too and uh, when i was talking to 
Um, the guy that's helping us out, he said, you know, if you pick this unit this season, it's any elk. So any elk that, you know, any elk is legal. doesn't have to be a branch bull. doesn't have to be male. You can, you can kill a spike. You can kill a cow. And then it's not guaranteed, but many times you can buy an extra tag if you want to. So, I mean, that's $800 worth of tags if you just yeah. want to go out and shoot a cow on the first day. But right. if you're a resident and it's a $100 tag, well, and you want, it's a lot of meat for 100 bucks. So, oh, yeah, it is. So you can shoot a cow and then go chase bulls or, or whatever. I think I think for us, and I think John will agree, I, I mean, getting out there and a, a big draw to it is the adventure. So we're not going wall tent or anything like that. And I think for me, that's a lot of the allure to it is because it's like you're going to get to a gate and you're going to walk in X amount of miles and then you're going to set up your camp and then you're going to walk from that camp uh, X amount of more miles and it's going to be whatever happens, happens and come back and regroup. If they're there, they're there. If they're not, they're not. But for me, a big portion of it is like the the bushcraft, the 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 backcountry, the camping yeah. type aspect of it versus, you know, around here you could do it, but I don't feel like that there's that at least from where we sit here in, in western Michigan, it's a long drive to get to a place where you can hike in X amount of miles and then still walk X amount of miles and not run into anybody. So let me ask you this. When you get to that gate that you're talking about, is that a gate to private land or a gate to public? Public. Public. Okay. Public. Like, so it's foot traffic. It's or... foot traffic only. Or, okay. or you could take in animals or you right. know, horses or mules or whatever. Okay. But it's going to be, you know, just public land, big expanse. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't die. So let's go back to your, you said you had problems with your boots. Like, so did you end up? Oh, the, sure. The next time coming out, did you get some different boots? Yeah. I. Uh, so you I, went out this year. I went out 2017. Yep. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Colorado. Um, I had applied in 16, didn't get drawn. Applied in 17, was drawn. Um, my friend Andrea lives out there in the Crested Butte area. And that's an unbelievable area like one of the only areas that i've uh looked at that i was like oh this would be a cool place to live i mean it was it's a nice area um you know other than here i love living here but uh one of the only areas i thought i'd i'd, I'd be interested in living out there but yeah so was drawn went out there uh she lives in Crested Butte, so it was nice to have a roof <laughs> and heat and uh, facilities and my all-important shower. Um, but that was, I mean, I say do-it-yourself, self-guided. I mean, she, she knew the area. She was from there. She had done a lot of hunting, a lot of hiking there, so she knew what was going on. So it wasn't like I had, you know, hopped out of a car and just said, oh, I'm going to try this out. Um, so, yeah. The, back to your question about the boots so i i started looking early in 17 at what do i need and boots was one of the things boots and a, a, 
a nice pack, uh, not a pack frame pack, but just a, a day pack to carry. And so I went with some keen hikers. Uh, I have wide feet, so I need a wide toe box. And, you know, with my whitetail hunting, I've always just dealt with not having great boots. Like they didn't fit great, but I don't go very far. Right. You know, a mile or so and just deal with it. Yeah. So um, we went out there in the, the first day that I'm hunting out of Crested Butte with Andrea, and she's an absolute beast. Like, I, I'm a triathlete. I, you know, I had uh, about 1,100 miles of running under me this year, or 2017. And uh, <laughs> we got out there in the first day hunting. We did 20 miles in the mountains, <laughs> up and down and up and down. And my boots were good. My feet got wore through a little bit. I had some, I had got de- decent socks. Um so another thing I would advise is get some decent socks that you're going to keep just for that. Um, and, man, we were up and down and up and down, and we saw hundreds of animals that first day. But those keen hikers, they were like a – they're not the lowest. They're not like a tennis shoe cup, but they were like a mid. So they came just above my ankle, so I had a little bit of ankle support when we were side-hailing it. And those were awesome. I brought another pair of boots for in case those ones, you know, started giving me problems or anything. Um, that were just a lightweight leather boot, but I would, unless it was really cold, I would wear hikers every day. Just that comfort factor, I mean, made all the difference in the world. And you can be quiet in them. You know, it's like wearing tennis shoes. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to figure that out myself because the guy that I'm 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 talking to, he's all about the the Kennetrek boots. You know, he says, you know, Idaho tears up boots and the area that you're going to be in and the 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 grasses and the rocks and that stuff you know destroy boots and i'm sure that for 500 dollars a kind of trek it's a really nice boot <laughs> but uh you know this is kind of a like i said i had planned on this for next year or 2019 so putting this all together and and kind of getting the gear and especially you know, for for the backcountry stuff, it's buy a frame pack. Okay, what he's asking me, you know, what tent do you have? Um, that sort of thing. And um, for me, I've I, I don't have any like um, visions of grandeur or anything like. Oh, it's not going to be that big of a deal. Um, I know that it's going to be really difficult, but you know, from my experience in the military and the gear that I have, I'm I'm fairly confident. You know, in my ability and in the gear that I that I do have, and I have a lot of gear left over from from the military. And um, again, it's that adventure of like, well, I mean, I've even outside of the military, I've I've slept, just done some hammock camping and slept under a tarp and done all that. I mean, you know, with the sleeping bag and the sleep system that I have, you know, I've just dug a hole in the snow and slept in it. You know, so I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> better closer. man than that. I'll say. <laughs> I'm, I'm comfortable. I've slept in that same thing in basically monsoon type downpour. Now, if if it was, I guess, sustained weather like that, I'd probably walk back to the truck. I mean, like right. I, I mean, granted, you know, and even in those situations, like you know, we couldn't just build a fire. Like I, I feel like I could do that too, and. Again, it's like I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth and say, "Well, I don't really need, I don't really need that." 
But at the same time, it's like, well, it takes kind of the adventure out of it a little bit. It's like, I, I'm pretty sure I can do this, you know, this way, but I don't know the terrain. I mean, even what you're saying, where Mark, I think Mark and John are a lot the same is that they're like, I'm going to get, I'm going to do the research and I'm going to buy like the best, the most <laughs> expensive or whatever somebody else says. And I'm going to say, I'm going to buy gear that I know is going to work in given the situation. So like John and I had the conversation here of a $150 pack frame pack versus a thousand dollar frame pack. Yeah. I mean, for, for seven days, for a seven day hunt. I mean, I, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those things of like, you know, if, if it ends up that, you know, this bow hunter Chronicles podcast thing is the, the next big thing. And you're going to, somebody's going to pay me to do this. Um, but, but right now it's like my wife is saying, so you're going to buy what $500 boots, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Let, let me stop you right there. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not buying any, I'm on the same page with the hundred dollar pack or, you know, $150 pack. Cause I'm, this is going to be a, a limited budget trip. Well, and, and the other thing guys is, you know, my pack frame has sat there since 2010. I didn't even bring it this year because she had all the stuff. So you know, when you're talking about budget and you're thinking about that stuff, the stuff that I have for out west is not stuff that I use around here. So if you guys want to use any of my stuff, there you go. Well, I just ordered a $150 pack, but John might take you up on that offer. <laughs> <up. laughs> yeah. yeah but, my, my wife's already, uh, she's like, how am I, like, you're planning another trip? I'm like, well, <laughs> This yeah, is like to. a yeah. This is content. I mean, we have to <laughs> right. You know, we got to keep this podcasting rolling. Yeah, I mean, I've just I just bought another bow strictly to set up for the podcast, but it's also a carbon fiber bow, so it's going to be really great hiking through the mountains with a three pound bow instead of an eight pound bow. Right. Oh, that's going to be awesome on your arm. Yeah. The uh, on that note, you know, as far as hiking with it, I think I may have shared this with you, but. The, my first year, the reason I didn't have my release on when I came into that 5x5 five five that was up on the saddle is because my release stuck up in my hand. It was rigid. So, and I'm right-handed. So everything I did, you know, I couldn't wipe my face, couldn't get in my pocket, couldn't do anything because this release would, you know, stick into everything. And um, so I went and found a release that, you know, banded around my wrist. And I don't know what type it is maybe it's like a scott i think scott's have the little yeah so then the the release is actually on a piece of um uh like that flat uh it's like a webbing or something yeah the nylon strap yeah yeah and so that was awesome because when i didn't want it in my hand i would just open up my sleeve and drop the release in my sleeve and let my sleeve go and the elastic in my sleeve would keep the release and it you know it's on my wrist all the time then so all I had to do to get ready was open up my sleeve and drop it back into my hand. And that, that made for, and I, I kind of fell in love with that because then I'm always ready. And I would, when you're looking at your gear and buying your gear, um, I'm no gear expert like you are, but, um, <laughs> you know, when I'm looking at my gear, I'm always thinking, if I use that, can I always be ready? Um, because I don't know how many times that I was disappointed with myself because I just wasn't ready for an opportunity and uh, I don't I don't put as many hours into hunting as some guys do but you know to be out there you know when, when I missed that opportunity on that first five by five 
I was sure that was the only opportunity I was going to have. And I was like, man, I just, I missed it because I wasn't ready. Right. That could have been your only opportunity. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, for, for us, for, for John, I know, and he's gotten me into watching it, but like the YouTube, like watching Mark, you should watch while you're doing some of your riding, um, Born and Raised Outdoors. Mm-hmm. And then guys out there, if you're not watching the Born and Raised Outdoors Land of the Free Project. Um, you're missing and, out. Well, and you don't want to spend a couple grand on an elk hunt, then by all means, continue not watching it. But if, if you want to get pumped up about uh, some really great guys doing some really cool stuff, check out Born and Raised. Um, yeah. their, their YouTube is amazing they did a like 50 day elk hunt 50 day five Five states states. called land of the free yeah and so what they do and like this is you know when we were at ata john's like there's born and raised and i'm like who and i mean walked right up to him shook their hands whatever walked away a little bit and the one guy comes running back up to us and said well you're gonna hunt montana because that's when john was still thinking about hunting montana and said, you know, this is what you got to do. And they were just given all the information that they could. And then I started watching it and it's like, <laughs> these guys are so positive. Everything basically that could go wrong goes wrong. They have a lot of success. They have a lot of, a lot of misses, a lot of tons of opportunities, but they're just so positive And like, they say, buy tags, not gear. Right. And they also say, you got to get out there and do it. You can't, you can't learn anything by watching it. You can, I mean, and I think I've learned a lot from watching them because you just wander around and bugle, and then if, if something answers, then 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 you you know then that's the one that wants to play. But uh, but but yeah, it was like really really cool. And yeah. so like for us, your your primos is. Like they show you just the good stuff. Yeah, I mean these guys are bone. Like they were the guy was cutting cilantro. Trent was cutting cilantro. He cuts his finger right to the bone, you know. And then he, but this is on like day twenty. He's got thirty more days of elk hunting in the back country. Well, and the availability information to that point, um, you know, in two thousand eight when I first went out there. So I was leading up to that, you know, spring summer of two thousand eight when I was doing all my shooting, doing all my research, and that. There's the the information then was a lot more limited. You're talking ten years ago now, um, so there there wasn't podcast. I mean, there I don't even know if podcast was a thing in 2008. Um, but there there wasn't you know really YouTube on that stuff. You just couldn't get your hands on the information like you can nowadays. And I'm not talking you know don't want to sound like it was 1943 or anything, <laughs> but it was uh, it it was a little different uh, than what it is now to to get gear. I didn't have like this year or last year when I got my boots, I went on Amazon and I found my keen hikers and they were on sale for like 90 bucks because they were a couple year old model. And I was like, oh, that works. You know, and they were, they were awesome boots. I'd, I'd highly recommend those um, for doing it, uh, for going out there and doing a lot of hiking. But, um, you know, they didn't have all these guys like that can just put on a show, you know, for a budget and get on YouTube or get on or have a podcast like this and, and get that information out there. And, you know, again, you turned me on to the podcast and like a whole new world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of a, 
I'm kind of a conduit for uh, our group of friends. I think that's <laughs> one of the things that's uh, kind of driven this. I'm like, man, these guys really listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> like when I turn that truck into a grease car. Yeah, yeah. You know, we can we can do all sorts of stuff here at the uh, Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. We're jack of all trades. But, but yeah, my my hunt in 17. That was it. It, it was not even what I had imagined doing. Um, because I was not for all the miles that I put on my body in a year, I was not in the kind of shape that Andrea was in. And so that's a a good point is you got to kind of have a, a good plan. Like I'm pretty easy going with my plan. Like I'm like, Hey, I want to do this. Oh, you want to do that? Yeah, that's cool. Let's go do that. But, um, you know, you got to have a plan with your partner. Like what, what's going to happen? Like, What's going to happen if the elk are 20 miles that way and it's 8 o'clock in the morning? What's going to happen if the elk are 5 miles that way and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon? You know, what go into it so that you know what the what the plan is. And obviously you guys, you know, know each other real well and everything, so you can kind of come up with your plan together. But, you know, there's a lot to be said about that because in 2008, uh, I don't remember what I did, but... My Uncle Don thought I was a damn fool for whatever I was doing that was not in his plan. Was it cleaning an elk? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say we didn't see eye to eye on that. Uncle Don, if you listen to this, sorry. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and uh, so the, this this year on, on the hunt, we did a lot of miles, and it was really cool. Like, I, I love to soak up information, and... Um, Andrea had a, a ton of information, but, um, she was very much a, um, walk and like she had things that had worked for her in that area in years past. And we got out there and like, she's like, all right, we're going to go here. We're going to do this and we're going to call and I, we're going to see him. Cause that's what, that's what always happens here. And it didn't happen. And we were going spot, 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 and it wasn't happening like that. And so then we were kind of at a, you know, it was kind of a quandary, like, what are we going to do now? And so I think it was the third or fourth day, she's like, all right, you just plan today. And I said, well, I'd like to go up that old mining road because it looks like it goes like five miles in there that's not side-hilling it. And if you're a person from the Midwest like I am, and uh, you don't, like, the other place we went in Colorado, just outside of Rifle, there was no, there wasn't a lot of side hailing. There were some cattle trails, and you had cattle trails you traveled on, whatever. Man, I'm telling you, <laughs> until you get into 20 miles of side hailing it, <laughs> you have no idea the beating that your body can take by walking in a straight line on the side of a steep hill. <laughs> it sucks. So I just really wanted to do something that wasn't side-hilling it. So I said, well, let's take that up. So we got up there, and it took us in like five miles, and it was easy walking. And so that was like, I mean, that's like, you know, the best dessert you ever had. It was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> so we got to the end of that um, before daylight, and we kept hiking. And we got up into this area, and it just smelled elky. And... uh it, you know, I know you guys haven't done any elk hunting, but when you get out there, I mean, when they when they are getting close to the rut, um, it's like a rutting deer, and, and you can smell them, but an elk, it's like, it's everywhere. I mean, they'll, 
start rubbing a tree and just pissing on it, pissing on themselves. They're pissing everywhere. And the area just sm- and it hangs in the air. It's just this really dank, really alky smell. And I thought I was in tune with it, but Andrea, like, she's like, ah, I smell that. Ah, there's elk around here. And so we'd stop and we'd do a little calling or whatever, but then we'd walk like another 100 feet or 100 yards or whatever, and then I could finally smell it just because I wasn't in tune with it as much. Um, so we, we got into this area, and there's just sign everywhere. And it just reminded me of my... Uh, 2008 trip and I was like man I'd really like to I'd like to just hang out in here and you know wait for the sun to come up uh, so we're not cast in the long shadows and long shadows are a thing if you guys don't know so when the elk or when the sun comes up over the mountain and it's first coming across the horizon your shadows can go for a hundred feet and so then you know everything behind you in the woods can see that and so you're, you're not just your movement right here, but your movement for the whole hundred feet behind you or whatever. Um, so generally during that time, you'll, you'll kind of hunker down and wait it out. Um, so well, we didn't, didn't agree on that. So we kept going and we got up to the top and the sun came up and we were casting long shadows and she's like, oh, we should, uh we should hang out here until we get rid of those uh, shadows, you know, until we're not casting long shadows. I'm like, all right. So we sat, and this is the first time in this trip that that we sat. And, uh, you know, I'm, we're had a snack. You know, we're burning a lot of calories, so we're putting calories back in. So plan your nutrition. If you guys haven't thought about that, I uh, plan my tr- nutrition like I'm in a triathlon. Um, Ramen noodle budget on this one, John. <laughs> don't do that you'll have the worst hunt <laughs> you gotta have at least peanut butter man um, on peanut butter <laughs> yeah you gotta have some high um, high caloric stuff to keep your blood glycogens up um, but so we sat down we had a snack we're sharing our snacks and all of a sudden we hear crunch 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 you know it, it's it's on and you know I'm, I'm telling her I'm like you know get get ready get ready I, I'm ranging your shooting and so she gets ready and I can just see it like washing over her. She's, uh, she's hunted for several years and she's never gotten elk. Um, and so I'm like watching this and she's getting excited and I'm like, all right. And we crunch, crunch, crunch. And there's something behind us and there's something on the side of us and there's something down the hill from us. And I'm like, man, this is going to be, this is going to be cool. So we're in this spot with small Aspen and small Aspen might as well be as thick as dark timber. Cause it's thick. So we can see like 30 yards down the hill and like 20 yards to our right and like 15 yards to our left, and that's it. So we're in a pretty small hole on the side of this 20 miles of country that we're covering. And uh, so she's like, she says to me, she goes, oh, there's a cow. I'm like, all right, get ready, you know. So she sees it. I can't see it. So it comes up, and it's standing there broadside, and I range it. And I, I leaned towards her, and I said, 18 yards. <laughs> and she goes, okay. And she draws her bow back, and I'm just waiting. Like, this is going to happen. This is going to be so awesome. And she's held back on this thing. And she's still held back, and she starts leaning back towards me. I'm like, what is she doing? And I hear her go, did it walk away? <laughs> and 
I'm like, it's right there. It can hear you. You know, its ears are all cocked forward. It's listening. I mean, it's, it's real close to us. There's no wind. There's no nothing covering our noise. And she goes, I can't see it. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's 18 yards. It is right there. It's a chip shot. So um, she lets her bow down, and it's looking at us. And she's only, you know, foot and a half, two feet away from me. And I'm ranging. And uh, I'm like, do you got a shot? And she says, no. And I, she goes, I can't see it. And I go, do you want me to shoot? And she said, yeah, if you got a shot, shoot it. So I grabbed my bow, and I already had my arrow on there. I just pick it up, and I put my release on, and I drew back. And I had, I could see the elk's head, and then I had about a 6-inch, 8-inch gap in the trees, and I could see its front leg. And so I had its shoulder and its head. So I put my um, short pin on it. You know, I have a 0 to 35-yard pin. So put my short pin on it, aim blow, looking for a heart shot, and touched it off, and see the arrow disappear right in there and I'm just like oh man that was I mean nailed it got it it was perfect shot and we still have animals all around us so I'm telling her I'm like just stay ready and I get my rangefinder up and I'm looking around and she kind of leans back and she goes did you hit it and I'm like yeah I, I got it she's like oh awesome and then there's you know animals and they start coming around from behind us and uh she stands up and I'm sitting down. I'm like, you know, whispering to her, I'm not even going to move. I don't want to mess this up for you. So uh, she gets ready and she she's standing there, standing there. And I can tell she's just holding as still as she can. And finally we hear something snort and take off. Excuse me. And she's like, oh, it's three mule deer. I'm like, okay. So then we're sitting there for like another hour and a half because there's animals but we're in such a closed-in, dense area that we can't see what's going on. Well, uh, ends up, she didn't didn't see anything else, didn't, uh, didn't have anything else come in, so we get up and walk over, and there's my cow elk laying there at about 40 yards from us. Um, and this is another big learning moment for me. So I start quartering this thing out, got my same... Alpha Wolf, Knives of Alaska knife, and it's doing an awesome job, and I'm, I'm quartering it, and, uh, you know, she's learning a little bit from me on, you know, taking care of this elk, and we start having bees and flies, and she pulls out black pepper, black pepper. It's on that list I, 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 from the guy <laughs> the, that uh, is helping us out on the strip. He gave me, like, a gear list of things to get, things to pack, and it's, you know, just things to consider and on that list is pepper yeah and i've heard this story from mark before and i was thinking like it's not for seasoning your uh your eggs i don't think like i think it's i think it's from this no it's so she got the black pepper and before we put um in the game bags um any area that was exposed meat we sprinkled pepper on it and like you'll understand when you get out there and you get something down but the bees and the flies come in like crazy. I mean, they're everywhere um, by the hundreds. You'd put some black pepper on it, and they stay away from that. And I was like, well, that's awesome. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, so quarter this animal out. And uh, one thing that I realized, because we had one bag of game bags, 
they sell game bags in fours. So you get a bag, there's four game bags in it. So always carry at least two bags of game bags because they're big enough to fit your quarters in, but then where do you put your loins, where do you put your neck, where do you put your back straps? So I ended up cutting that. I had a long sleeve camouflage shirt on, so I ended up cutting the sleeves off my shirt, poking some holes in it. I think Mark just wanted to show off his guns. <laughs> the gun show. <laughs> it's like, I just killed an elk. Oh, man. That, that's kind of what the pictures ended up looking like because I was carrying it out, and she was taking pictures, and I got blood from the elk running down my arms and stuff like that, and I'm carrying the elk <laughs> up like this. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, we packed out... Um, the neck meat, the back straps, the loins, and the two front quarters in the front in the first uh, hike out and traded off on the second front shoulder uh, just because we were a ways out there, I think. I think it was like seven, eight miles. So it was, it was a hike, and it was warm, so we were hustling because we didn't want any of the meat to go bad. Uh, so we hiked it all, but we had that lovely, <laughs> lovely old mining road that you got down on it, and you're walking on a flat surface, and it was amazing. <laughs> and so we hiked it all the way down to the Jeep, and we got down there, and we're like, crap, uh, it's 70 degrees out. It's like 90 degrees in the Jeep. So um, I got underneath the Jeep. Like, literally, I'm my hands and knees underneath the Jeep, and I was like, oh, the ground underneath the Jeep is still cold from the morning. So we put the meat on the ground under the Jeep, and she had, uh, like, sleeping bag and some stuff in the Jeep. So put that over top of it under the Jeep, turned around, well, had a little bit of whiskey to celebrate, turned around and headed back up. And uh, I, I kid you not, I mean, she might be 100 pounds, but this girl, there was no stop in her. And not to say that just because she's a girl, but anybody who's 100 pounds to see them carry a hindquarter of an elk. I mean, she just, not a complaint in her, had it on her back, and she's just going. And I was just so amazed. I mean, I here I am at, you know, 215 or whatever I was this fall. And, like, I'm, I'm it's hard work. It's a lot of... It's a lot of carrying. It's a lot to do to, to have a hind quarter, a whole hind quarter on your back and do some hiking. And, yeah, there she goes. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep up. Like, holy <laughs> crap. Uh, but, yeah, uh, we used a lot of paracord. So, you know, I, I had like 100 feet of paracord in my pack just to, you know, do my Boy Scout thing. But, um, you know, I'd suggest to have a roll of paracord with you, have a good knife. Have a nice sharpener. <laughs> There's that meme out there that's like, we all know that one guy that has all the stuff in his pack. I feel like like that's completely targeted at me. Like it's like, <laughs> and that's what I'm I'm excited trepidations about this trip is that like it's a chance to like use all that stuff. Like, <laughs> well, you know, like on on some level, but then there's going to be this balance of well. You got to carry it too. So yeah, the the weight versus uh, accessibility thing is, um, you know, first thing I think about is what's uh, what's the possibility of the weather going to look like, and what clothes am I going to need? And so that's the first thing I pack. After that, it's nutrition, um, water. You got to have it. I mean, your first day at least bring twice as much water as you think you're going to need, and then kind of figure it out from there. Uh, my first day when we did that twenty miles. I brought uh, 
I think it was a 36 ounce thing of water and I was dehydrated by the end of the day. I was in bad shape. Uh, not, not like critically bad, like, but I like my lap, my lips were starting to get chapped and everything. And I was a little worried about it. Um, so granted you're a, a triathlete and so you do all sorts of conditioning. Um, but I think for us, what's the, the main thing. And what I, what I was talking to him about is like, I mean, you, you know, my conditioning, I'm, I'm in fairly good shape. I'm, I mean, yeah, I know your conditioning. You can just put on running shoes anytime you want and go yeah. run a 5K and run faster yeah. than me. <laughs> yeah, Mark, Mark was pretty disappointed. We were in uh, Cabo last year at this time, and uh, he's like, well, I'm going to go running. I said, I'll go running with you. And then we were, you may have been a little hungover. Mark may have been a little more hungover <laughs> than me. I don't know. But he can say whatever he wants to. But we were just running, <laughs> and he's like, I, I did, when was the last time you ran? I was like, I I don't know, like six months ago or something like that. It's like, <laughs> there he goes. I'm telling you, John, he's just. So I was like, well, you know, I mean, three miles is three miles. Three miles is just like a run. But, uh, but yeah, even with this guy that I was talking about, he said, you know, if, if whatever your physical condition is, you know, I said, I run you know a couple times a week now. And he said, that's probably fine. But the stair stepper, he said, you need to get mm-hmm. that, that motion of going up that 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 motion and with your legs and and that sort of conditioning but i don't i mean i don't really know i mean yeah. I've, I've been in the mountains before like i said with the with the marines and and all that sort of thing with really heavy packs you know that was a long time ago but i think it's to a degree there's got to be some sort of mental component to it so oh yeah as, if you can get in your own head and say well i can't do this or this is terrible you know you heard defeated yeah yeah but like if you've done it before, it's like we'll suck it up, you know. You know, so I'm I'm trying to balance that portion out of, again, not not having this idea of like, well, I'm just going to go out there and it's going to be so easy, but it's going to be an adventure. Well, so. and the one thing that I wasn't really prepared for that uh, probably led it a lot to her physical condition, you know, her just being able to take off and go. Um, she hikes up there, and so all of mine was Midwest flat ground running. I mean, at that point I was running up to, you know, 12, 13 miles. And so I had the, I had the endurance, I had the lungs. Uh, what I didn't have was the ability to side hill. I mean, my, my hip flexors and my glutes were so sore, uh, that first day from being on those hills. And I, I mean, I, I, I came back from there and my, my running times actually got significantly better from the amount of um, stuff that I was doing that was not running on flat ground. Um, you know, I, I could tell that I had uh, put quite a bit of work into my, st- you know, your hip flexors, if you don't know, they're, they're like the stabilizer muscles for when you're doing all this off-kilter, kind of uneasy stuff. And a lot of runners end up having trouble with their knees and their ankles and, and their IT bands and stuff because their hip flexors aren't strong because they're just running on flat ground to train for running. Um, so I, I would highly recommend going down to Coast Guard Park or Hoffmaster or whatever. I was going to say, go hit the dunes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that that would be awesome. Um, so we, we do the trails every once in a while. You know, we go over to uh, the Snug Harbor Park. And then those trails go all the way up out to the bathhouse. So, well, that's one of the things that uh, I I was surprised about um, that 
it was as far as it was, but all the, the hilly terrain too is, uh, you know, I put some pictures up of going and doing some scouting on some new land, um, over by my house. And, you know, by the time I got done, it was four and a half miles. I, I mean, I did almost a four and a half mile loop and it was really hilly. You know, I went down into this, um, it's like an offshoot of the Muskegon river, but it's the Cedar Creek and I was going up and down and it, it was in the snow and it there was I didn't even it didn't even phase me uh, as far as like how far it was. I was very very surprised that I mean how far I walked in that. So watching these videos and they're saying like, "Well, we went we're three miles and, and stuff like that." It, it put a little bit of perspective in it because I've I've never really tracked how far I've gone or or whatever. Now, granted, I understand that it's going to be different and I. I suppose I'm going to need to do the exact same thing with, you know, that pack on my back, you know, at, you know, 50, 60 pounds. Now, what altitude were you guys, were you guys up? Uh, both times it was like we got up to about 12,000 feet at the highest in okay. 17, and we were down probably 10,000 feet at where we parked. Yeah. So, so that, that's, that's high. That's way <laughs> different than, you know, so the stuff that I was looking at was uh, we're going to be right around – uh, 5,500 feet. Oh, yeah, that'll be easy. And uh, it, he, he was showing me on the map and, and some pictures of you can get up to 8,000 feet, but at 8,000 feet, he said it's just rock. So there's really there's no elk going to be up there. Right. You could go up to the base of that rock around 7,000 feet and do some glassing and things like that, but it's not going to be, you know, we're, we're going to be right around, you know, five 6,000 feet max. Yeah, say when we were out there on the, the Montana trip, we went over Beartooth, I think, at the one spot was, might might have been 10,000. And, you know, we walked around for a little bit, and it was like, man, the air is really thin up here. Yeah. Yeah, so this this I don't think is going to be it's going to be like that, but... That, that I mean, that's an important point, though. Uh, when we, in 2008, my Uncle Brell, um, he ended up hunting the whole 10 days within 200 yards of camp because he never acclimated to the altitude. So he was, I mean, really really struggling now he was a smoker and stuff too but um he was really struggling with getting away from camp and just being able to walk you know he came out and saw my elk and helped us cut it up and try to help carry some stuff out but he couldn't carry and breathe right so um you know that's something that there's something to be said about getting acclimated to the altitude and um have both you guys been at altitude before not like no. like I said, Not like just that. out there last August. I mean, five thousand feet shouldn't be an issue. But no, I mean, I mean right here we're at four thousand feet. So, yeah, okay, well, no problem then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, so my time out in California and in the mountains, and even, I think you know, even in Africa, there was a little bit of mountains that we were in. At that point in my life, you didn't even ever think about it. There was no like. You didn't get an option. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just like you just deal with it. All right. And so we'd have to buy one of them training masks, you know. It's yeah. like the Yeah. <laughs> if we're gonna be hunting where those guys were twelve thousand or ten thousand feet. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but I, I'm that that portion of it and I, and I was asking those questions, so I, I Are you I, are you gonna bring your bikes out there? Well, that's right now we're in the hundred percent complete planning phases of this okay. but that's what that's what he was saying is that you know he asked you know do you have mountain bikes because he said those elk 
are, you know, somewhat accustomed to the yeah. of foot, but that of the the mountain bike, they don't they don't associate that with humans, or it's not mm-hmm. it's not a sound they're, that they're they not hear. Scared of it. So um, he had mentioned that too, but well, and the the point I was going to make about that is, um, you know, when we went and we hiked and we got in there. And we were, you know, like I said, the first day we did 20 miles. So we were probably, furthest we were was eight or nine miles from the car. And it was kind of cool because we got up there and you could see it. And we actually got into some elk on that first day up there. Um, But, um, you know, if you have an area that you can ride your bike and get in there six miles before it starts getting hilly to the point where it doesn't... um, where, where the fuel economy doesn't make sense. You know, when I say fuel economy, I'm talking about nutrition. When you're burning more calories than what it's worth to actually ride a bike up a hill, right. um, you know that's when a biker turns into a hiker. So <laughs> that's when you hop off. But if you can do that, then you're going to beat all the guys that are just on foot. Because a lot of, like in our area we went to, there was, um, out of all the hunters that we saw, there was two people on bikes. And uh, I ended up not getting a bike. I'd planned on renting one out there, but the shop they had only had really high-end bikes, and they were like $175 a day. So. Yeah, and, and Mark's, uh, you know, sponsored by Felt Bikes, so, you know, it, they, if they didn't have Felt, he couldn't he couldn't be seen on them. I wish I was sponsored by Felt Bikes, if you're listening to this. Uh, if you if you had seen the video, he's wearing a Felt Bike shirt as well. So Yeah, you know, and we're sitting next to two of them. Yeah, i got two Felt Bikes in the room right now because I keep all my – all my bikes in the living room. <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's, but it's if, definitely, if you don't a, mind, a consideration. Like, uh, just to kind of jump back on a point that I made earlier about like what you're going to do and like being on the same page, because on the first day we went and we went to the spot and we called and nothing happened. So we said, okay, we're going to go up the hill. And when I say up the hill, I mean, I'm talking up the mountain. Um, so, we started hiking up there and here I am pretty good physical shape. And I was counting it. I could take 28 steps before I had to stop and breathe. I mean, we're at 12,000 feet almost. This is about the highest elevation we had. Um, and we get halfway up there and we stop and we sit down we're going to get some water. And I look back and I said, no shit. They're elk right there. And I'm looking back at the exact stump that I'm sitting on, and there are six elk by it. I mean, within two feet of it. They were all around this thing. And that, that area was really rutted up. So um, you know, one point out of that is pay attention to those areas that are really rutted up. Because if you see an area that's like eh, a little bit of a trail, a little bit of scat, you know, a couple of tracks, that's one thing. If you see an area that's just beat down, there are going to be elk in there pretty much every day. And it's worth spending some time sitting there because we, uh, like three or four of the days, this area that we had sat on the first day and then we never went back to until like the second to last day, um, or third to last day. When we would walk around the area, we would glass and there was elk in there every day, every day. Um, so if we would have kind of been on the same page about that, but, uh, getting back to the elk that we saw by that stump, we got up the hill, and I'm saying, well, there's a drain right there. We can use the terrain and scoot down because those elk, by my estimation, are going to come up 
and then cross that saddle because that's the easiest walking for them. They're not going to walk through all this really uneven and this deep. I mean, the drains there are like uh, 15 feet down to a little trickle of water. Right. Um, so I'm like, let's scoot down that as fast as we can because we only got 100 yards to cover and they have 500 yards to cover. And, you know, we weren't on the same page about it and she wanted to hang out where we were. So we just hung out there and waited. And right at the bottom of the drain, those elk came right up to it. 100 yards away from us and they went over that saddle the other side of the mountain right there six elk first day and i was like oh man that was like that would have been an excellent opportunity because if we would have stayed in that drain we wouldn't have been able to see them but they wouldn't have been able to see us until they came up onto that saddle and they would have been like 10 yards broadside at that point so you know again you want to talk about hey what you know when this when these different type of things happen, what do we want to do? Because a lot of times you don't want to try to move in on elk, but other times you can really use a train and uh, use that to your advantage because they, um, if they can't see and they can't hear you, they're they're not scared of you. So you know, like whitetail get really twitchy. Elk, I, I wouldn't say are quite that way. Yeah, I, well. I was going to mention, like, the back to the born and raised thing. You know, those guys, they do the run and gun. But, like, you're saying you guys had called mm-hmm. by that stump and then walked away, basically. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're there. So, you know, that's one of the things that we've learned from that video is they're calling, calling, and they didn't even, they, a couple of them, they didn't even hear a bugle. They just heard a, a snap. Yeah. 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 And then. All of a sudden, you know, it's on. They're coming in silent to that call. but Or like when they're walking through the woods, maybe like that, the dark timber or something, you know, doing some cow calling and walking. You know, you can kind of disguise yourself because obviously elk's a big animal. They're making, like you are saying, you guys were sitting there and all of a sudden you hear this, they're yeah. coming. Oh, yeah. You know, you couldn't see them yet. So it kind of can work both ways. It's Well, and that's, you know, that the guy that I've been, I've been dealing with he. He says the same thing. He said, "Don't don't worry about making noise because elk make noise. They're, they're big animals. They they make noise, you know. So everybody is that I've talked to or that I've had question. They say, well, do you turkey hunt? And when you're talking about walking and calling, like that's that's backfired on me a hundred times where you're walking and calling. Then you turn around there's a Tom right there or a Jake or whatever. Cause they're coming in quiet. You know, if they're not answering, so, you know, sometimes you need to sit there and, 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 and Commit listen, for a minute. you know, and you know, sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't, but damn, it's fun. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's the... And any of the stuff that I'm saying, I'm like, oh, I should try this. You do that. I'm, but I'm far from being an expert, but, like I've noticed over the couple of times I've been out there, the same things tend to happen. So then I'm like, oh, okay, I just learned something. Yeah. I need to apply that next time. Well, that's the that's the whole idea behind this platform is like not, you know, John and I are not experts by any means, but we're doing it. So it's like follow along with us and and we're gonna you know learn from our mistakes, mm-hmm. right? right. Yeah, because we're definitely going to make some mistakes. <laughs> right, and I think that's some of the, like, the most fun parts of it is like when you do make a mistake, is like it's 
it almost, you know, it almost happened. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, again, it's just weird because it keeps coming back to like this, like military thing, but like all the things that I remember from the military or like the things that just sucked, like, yeah, hunting is a little bit different is like, you remember a lot of the successes, but right now I can't tell you how many deer I've killed or how many opportunities that I've had. But when I messed up, I can probably tell you, we could probably go through it. I could probably tell you year by year, how many times like things have went wrong. And because like when it sucks, (laughs) those are the things that like you learn from and they're ingrained in your memory. And so, so, so this whole thing is like, you know, follow along and, and, and live this experience with us because like, you know, we're, we're going to make mistakes, but I, I want to have fun doing it. That's the, if, if you're not having fun, then you're not, why are you doing it? Right. 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 And that's, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. I, you know, I've, I've messed up on some whitetail <laughs> <laughs> and I love hunting whitetail with my bow, but it is the most frustrating thing for me when I'm just messing up and I'm, well, I've said it a hundred times. It's like, man, I should just, it, what I should, I'm like the world's worst bow hunter. Like, right? It's like, it's like, it's like everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. You know? yeah. I mean, right now, as I say those words, like I'm at full draw at this four point right here and he bounds off and I look up and there's another deer staring at me. It's this much bigger buck standing there who watched me draw my bow that I didn't even know was there. And I'm going like, this, this, this deer I watched, the four point I watched for 50 yards come to me on a string. And I was like, oh, this is such a done deal. And then <laughs> everything, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Just, you know, so. I, that, I, I shot, well, you saw the picture of the nice uh, eight point that I shot this year. You know, I, um, once I got a couple of deer hanging on the wall, I, you know, I, I kind of had the regular thing that you have in Michigan where you have a box of small antlers. I got a box of small antlers in my storage unit. I mean, a big box of all these little antlers for all these deer I've shot. And I'm like, that. It, it's not doing anything for me. So kind of self-imposed, a little bit of QDMA. But, uh, so I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And I don't have primo spots to hunt. Like, I just have regular... You know, 50 acres here and 14 acres there. And, you know, when you have a small plot like that, other people are hunting the same deer. A lot of other people are hunting the same right. deer. So I, I waited for years and years. And this year I had an opportunity to really nice, really nice for Michigan eight point. I mean, I would have guessed he probably went a 120, 125 and uh, shot. And I don't know if he ducked the arrow or if I just shot high, but I, I shot high and I clipped one lung and that, that deer made it. I mean, he, he made it through. We saw him throughout the season, but can never get back on him. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> kind of disgusting when you, <laughs> and those are uh, gut wrenching there. Yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, I mean, so this is, I think that's, that's part of bow hunting. I think if you're, mm-hmm. if you're following along with this and you're a bow hunter, Man, you've been there. I think I think everybody's been there at, at at one point or or another, and it's one of those things where you never want to be there. What we're talking about today is like 
It's a 34-hour drive where we're going. It's 34 hours out there and 34 hours back. So it's going to be a whole lot funner coming back when you have an animal. In yeah. The I just hope and, my old truck will make it out and there. And that's the thing is like, so, so why we're doing this and why we're asking all these questions and we're, we're talking to people that have been out there is because, you know, you get so nine, 10, two weeks off, whatever. You're going to try to hunt those seven days or whatever you get as hard as you possibly can, mm-hmm. but you want to minimize that one mistake that's going to cost you the one opportunity, Yeah, you know, right. because that, that one lung shot that you're talking about is 34 hours of toil oh. coming back. <laughs> well, not only that, I mean, so, you know, when you do that, just kind of like what happened in our Ohio trip, I mean, then you spend how many more hours or days trying to find that animal or track it down, you know, so then it takes up even more of the hunt. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, because you can't just, you owe it to the animal to go and try to find it, track it down. 100%. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that with the born and raised guys that they have a a really good system that I'm, I'm going to imagine that we're going to adopt too, but it's, you know, they're, they hunt, with either a group or a team. And if you've got an arrow in them and someone else has the opportunity, you shoot them Mm -hmm. because, you know, they've, they've been through it enough to know that, you know, that animal can go super far or, you know, whatever. And that was one thing that I struggled with on that first elk I shot in 2008 is, um, there it is dying out. And, uh, it, it's only 50 yards from me. And it would stand up and sit down and, you know, do whatever. And I'm like, it looked like a good shot and everything. But um, one thing we kept ringing in my head from old Will Primos, he's like, get another arrow in it. Was that Will Primos or was that Uncle Frank? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I saw it on the movie. So uh, unless Frank was. uh, Frank probably got it from them. No, 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 Frank was just. Uh, get an arrow in them to begin with. <laughs> and and that was one thing that they kept saying. So it kept going through my head and I had another arrow knocked up, but I'm thinking, man, it's, it's laying down. It's not dead. It's laying down. And then it'd stand up and I'm like, oh, I should draw back, but 50 yards. And, uh, I don't want to scare it off. It's right here. I don't really have a problem right now. So, um, and <laughs> when I had my, uh, masterful gutting session on it, I, I saw that, I had obliterated the one lung, and there was that. I mean, through the liver and through a lung, and that that thing wasn't going anywhere. But um, you know, you, you kind of think about those things, and you know, that would have been horrible if I would have lost that animal. You know, I I I hate not not being able to recover an animal, um, but like you said, it, it's it's all about the practice and knowing your equipment and uh, being ready for your opportunities. Because I find I find that I screw up a lot more when I'm sitting here in my deer blind, you know, right down the road from my house, and I'm looking at my work emails or somebody from you know this year, uh, somebody uh, opening day of gun season. I'm out there with my family and my son, and um, you know that's about the only time that I really like to gun hunt. It's, it's like a tradition in Michigan, and uh, I'm on the phone with work. <laughs> 
and I had a buck walk in, a nice buck, and I'm like, oh, well, there goes that, you know, because I'm I'm on the phone. So, you know, it's about it's about being ready because the opportunities will happen, but you minimize the failures if you're ready for them. Right. I think you know, with this, it's completely new, um, completely, at least for me, like outside of my comfort zone because it it took me quite some time to learn how to call turkeys i mean <laughs> effectively yeah and that was in a you know turkey season is at least the first turkey seasons are are when they're answering so we're going to be out there like before the rut it's not going to be the peak rut so it's going to be more about i think elk behavior and you know if we get something to answer it's probably going to be an immature bull or, or some something that doesn't really know what's going on and you know it's going to be something that doesn't know what's going on meeting somebody else that doesn't know what's going on so i think, I think it's going to be you know the perfect storm um well but, and, and you know with elk one thing that I, I do know is before they're bugling um if you get into a herd of animals you can hear them the calves are mewing the the cows are calling and it's just more of a social behavior, uh, much more so than with whitetail. Whitetail will, they'll they'll, they'll make some vocalizations outside of the um, rut, but you really don't hear it until you're into the rut, and that's when the bucks start grunting and whatever. Um, but we were, you know, we were out there this in '17, and it was early, and um, you know, we were we we're hunting for Andrea, and I have the the reed call in my mouth and I'm, I called and we were in this area and it was a steep downhill and I get her, she was like 60 yards in front of me behind a pine tree and uh, I called and they answered back and when they answered back, it was, it was exciting because they were right there. We couldn't see them of course, but they were right there. Uh, they couldn't have been a hundred, 150 yards away from us. And we could hear the, you know, I, I did a cow call and we heard some other cows and then we heard some calves and, uh, you know, that they'll do that all year long. So, and they, they may come up and just check out the area or if you have a bull that's, you know, pre-rut and you do a cow call that sounds good to him, he might, you know, take a lap around. And so you want to be, you know, like with uh whitetail mindful of your wind directions and stuff like that. And, uh, but I would, I would definitely recommend the um, the read call that you have in your mouth over the, you know, I have the hoochie mama thing, but it just, it's it's one sound. If if you don't know, hoochie mama is a thing that you hold in your hand and you squeeze it and it does a cow call. And I think that's kind of like the, the cow call for the guys that can't actually use a mouth call, which if you practice it a little bit, it's really easy, but, um, you know, bit of advice I'd give you is I kept the cow call in my mouth all the time because I was always ready with the cow call. Right. Because it will, it, it will if you spook, uh, if you spook a herd, you spook a herd and they're gone. If you spook one elk, a lot of times they don't even know what spooked them and you'll cow call and it'll stop them. Um, I did that this year and I did it in 2008 with that bull that I shot. And it, you know, it was pretty incredible to me to stick an arrow in something and then just be able to call and they stop and they're like, huh? What was that? Because right. <laughs> um, they don't they don't really know. I mean, when they're walking around in the herds, uh, another bull might you know poke them with an antler or something, right. and so they don't really know what happens at that point. But I think my uh, 
my family will love the the calls. I was thinking about that. It's like, so, so I don't know if we went over this on the podcast or not, but John and I, as the crow flies, live how far away? It's not even a mile, really. I don't. No, it's definitely not a mile. Yeah. It's 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 probably closer to a half a mile or less right. as the crow flies. So. What I'm wondering is that if you stand at the top of the hill and I stand at my house, if we can hear each other, oh, bugle. I'm definitely bugle. Oh yeah, you could hear me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think <laughs> I think all of our neighbors would be like, "What the hell's going on?" Because I know when I, when turkey season's going on, the wife and kids they're uh, like, "Would you please stop that?" And the same thing that you're talking about how uh, you were practicing in your car. Yeah. yeah. Well, years ago, like when I worked uh, nights, I'd drove a fork truck and i'd be on the fork truck all night and just calling and purring and people were like what are you doing do you stop that shit <laughs> <laughs> like i'm getting ready for turkey season what are you talking about oh. it, it's it's worth it because if you can if you can uh you know when you need to make a good cow call oh it's so worth it well, that's it, the thing. It, it you know, just changes things. Like a whitetail might, if you ground in a whitetail buck, he might come running right your way, or he might be like, whatever, and just go the other way. Any time that I needed a cow call to work for me, if I made a halfway decent cow call, it it seemed to work for me. Right. And I was like, oh, well, that's that. the other thing too is even like with uh, when turkey season, you know, you don't have a, people aren't used to having a reed call in their mouth. And mm-hmm. so, like you're saying, you're walking around with your mouth all the time. Yep. If if you're not practicing, like the first time you put one in for the season, yeah, you kind and of it's like, gaggy yeah, you're like, yeah. you know, or then just to get it into place real quick to call, yeah. you know, that's going to be key is, you know, getting that, getting used to it. So yeah. we'll definitely oh. be uh, putting an order in yeah. for the born and raised yeah. <laughs> calls. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the guys I was talking to also, um, he was saying just to record yourself and then listen back mm-hmm. and, and and figure it out. And I'm like, well, uh, luckily for us, we've got a podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> we've got some recording equipment. Turns and I up. can, I can show you all the different stuff that I've bought and what I like, and what I don't like. About well, what's it, funny I, is on that, on that born and raises, they talk about the Primo's Terminator bugle. And, uh, John had said it earlier as a Doug Flutie. And that that's what they refer to that as. And when they say Doug Flutie, it means that, it's some guy sitting on the tailgate of his truck just going. <laughs> but after seven days in the field, they're not really sure if it's, it sounds like a guy on the back of his pickup and then they'll, you know, follow it. And then they end up at a guy in the back of his pickup. <laughs> <laughs> or sitting on a log eating his lunch down by the river. And they're like, damn it, we got Doug Flutie. <laughs> Yeah, so I was telling the one guy who was, who was telling me to record myself and stuff like that, and I said, yeah, we're going to be the Doug Fluties, except for we're not going to have the Primo's Terminator. <laughs> so that's the, that's the only difference between us and that guy. Man, I tell you, in 10, when we went back out to Rifle, Colorado, um, you know, Andrea, uh, she was out there on that hunt, and her dad, Fred, who's, you know, that's how I even know her, as I was uh, buddies with her dad, and he, that that guy can call. I mean, that dude, and, and he's a little short guy. He's like five foot six or something like that. So he's a full foot shorter than me. And here I got a small pack call, which I don't know if you've seen a pack call, but they're only, I don't know, like foot and a half long. 
and they don't have the big bells and everything. It's just a small tube. And here he's got like the Grandmaster 9000 series out calling. I'm standing here six foot six with my little tiny call, and he's standing there five foot six with this gigantic freaking bugle. And he uh, he's out there bugling, and I couldn't get anything to respond to me. And he would bugle, and half the mountainside would look. <laughs> it would light up. I mean, they're just, rawr, rawr. I'm like, oh, my God. Just bugling like crazy at him. But So there definitely is a an art to um, making that bugle work and, and making the right sound for the animals. But... Yeah, yeah. We don't we don't know what we're doing, but uh, but, <laughs> Just but we're gonna what we're gonna do it. We're gonna practice. We're we're within elk calling range of each other. Yeah. So I think that's gonna the, be. A, I'll a send benefit. you a text, be like, hey, go step outside. I'm gonna send you a bugle your way. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. That's a good one, John. Sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. So I mean, I guess with that, that's kind of what where we're at right now with our. Um, our adventures this thing is uh solidified right so we're 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 committed we're we're headed out there the first week of september and uh we're gonna see what happens we're gonna bring everybody along uh we're gonna try and do some video and it's gonna be the two of us not knowing how to call and uh it'll be an adventure (laughs) oh it's it's gonna be an adventure so i mean the series may be called our great success we might be just like mark it'll be their first trip out there we'll <laughs> we'll double on the first day and then we'll just sit in the hot springs or it could be what not to do while elk hunting <laughs> but uh, this is this is what not to do but that what not to do sounds much more like the mark story <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna give it a go um and i think i think that that's one of the main things right with the podcast is you know it's bowhunter chronicles it's it's to bring everything along with with what we're doing and you speaking know. of that we're going to be now that we're uh, kind of at a slow period we're going to finally get going on the bows yeah so your bow and uh we're going to get some videos on that yeah so i'm not even sure ha- have we gone over that so i uh, nah. maybe maybe just a little bit so i bought a used um 2015 Carbon night, Bowtech carbon night, and uh, what we want to do with that, you know, is, you know, for the regular guy, you may not go out there and buy a flagship bow every year and say, okay, well, this is what we're gonna do. I'm, I'm gonna sell my old bow. We're gonna get a new one. Um, so if you buy a used bow, how do, how do you know if it's good? How do you know what, what are you looking for? And what's so, the, what's the draw length on that? So it's pretty adjustable. It's like twenty six to thirty. Yeah. Twenty. Yeah. Yeah, right around there. I don't know the exact specs, on yeah. it, but it's it's pretty adjustable. It's pretty adjustable, and it's a no press adjustable, right? Because I I was thinking about that. Yeah, it's just a module. Because we're gonna bring, because I'm gonna bring that. That's what I plan on hunting with um, in Idaho, and uh, because of the weight strictly. But I don't know is it going to be long enough for you? Because if if it had a thirty one inch adjustability. No, it definitely doesn't go to 31. Okay. Well, I was just thinking if your bow breaks or oh. or, or what, what happens, you know, because that was one of the things on the list is a backup bow. But yeah. but anyway, is what do you do if you buy a used bow? How do you know if it's a good good bow? You shoot it, 
And, uh, you know, the guy that you get it from, he says it shoots great. You shoot it and it shoots terrible. So what we're going to do, this bow needs a new string. Um, the rest isn't set up and I'm actually going to replace the rest. I've got a different, uh, rest that we're going to put on it. And so John's going to do some videos on how to build. He's actually going to build the string and kind of walk you through that process of it and then go through the tuning of it. Right. Right. And you know, if guys that are, you know, that aren't in tune with, you know, working on their bows and stuff, take it to a pro shop, you know, ask around and just find a, you know, a decent pro shop. And if you can get a hold of the bow, bring it to them and have them look it over. I mean, cause for the most part, you can look at the stuff, you can look at the cables and the, the string and check the condition of it. Look at the cams, make sure there's no nicks. And I think we've talked about that before, but then just, you know, or the limbs, make sure there's no D lamb going on. But, you know, for the most part, a pro shop will, uh, should should yeah that's what i'm saying find one you know talk to the guys if you have a local club you know like our club the bowman's club that we go to you talk to those guys there and they definitely have certain shops that they you know that they go to so yeah and and i think with that one of the things about a bow and i've heard it probably five times this year and it I never would have thought about it one one iota is that if I have John set my bow up, all he can do is make sure that essentially it's tunable because right. as soon as I get it in my hands, my grip, my everything, yeah, my mannerisms are going to make that bow shoot totally different than him shooting it. The only thing... And that's kind of like with bear shaft tuning. It's probably a whole other podcast, but all you can do is make sure that the bow is tunable, correct? Right. You want to make sure, you know, you set your center shot, you set your knock height, and you level your sight, stuff like that. If you have a sight that has, you know, second, third axis, make sure all that stuff is, you know, basically ground zero, set. Because I can paper tune the bow, and I can get it perfect bullet holes, and then I can hand it over to you. And you might get a left tear. And I might hand it over to Mark, and he get a right tear. It's all about, you know, because we're all different structurally, you know, in your stance, your grip, everything. So that's where, you know, you, you hear a lot of guys, well, I brought my bow in and had them paper tune it. And, you know, I, I got, you know, they tuned my bow up for me. Well, did you shoot it? <laughs> well, yeah. no. Well, the, that's, that's the issue with, you know, some of the, the shops is, you know, okay, they charge you 20 bucks for doing a tune-up on your bow, and, and you know, yeah, we paper-tuned, it's all good. Well, how's it shooting in his hands? Mm. You know, so that's the thing. And paper-tuning is so easy to do at home. You know, I I remember, like, the first time I, used to, I did it, I just took a couple pieces of PVC and taped some newspaper to it, you know, and just shot through it. Well, yeah, and we went through this, like I said, in the, one of our first couple podcasts is, you know, I'd never even heard of it and. uh you know, Frank says, well, what we did is we took a door jam and we taped newspaper across it. We right. shot through it into oblivion. And, you know, there was a hill back there and that's where the arrows went. But, but yeah, so, so that's one of the things that we're doing is we're going to take that bow, a bow that I, I've had it for 
a month now, I think. I've never shot it. It's been hanging in my garage. I, I'm, I'm not done anything with it. And so John's going to build a new string for that. He's going to um, kind of walk you through that process if you're if you're into that. But he's also going to show you how to set up a rest, um, find center. Um, I've got uh, a couple of peep sights, uh, one for the bow that I'm shooting now and one for this bow. And they are the precision peep sights. I got them from uh, Rich at uh, Big Texas Outdoors. And what they allow you to do is... Basically, they got a post in there, and all you do is line that post up with your pin, and it eliminates all of the leveling, all of that stuff. I mean, you should still level your bubble, but basically, you just lollipop that just like a pistol sight, and you put it on there. We're going to put that on there, and um, you know he's going to he's going to go through how to put a peep sight in, how to how to set up your rest, you know, how to set up your sight, all the axes. So um, check out our YouTube; it's Bowhunter Chronicles podcast uh, on YouTube. Uh, follow us on Facebook. We got a couple of really nice giveaways coming on um, up here in the next uh, couple weeks, um, and then check out the guys that are helping us out. You know, Serviceide. Um, go check them out. Use uh, uh, the code Chronicles. Uh, you get ten percent off anything that they've got there. Uh, they got some really good gear uh, going on. They got Lone Wolf tree stands, so ten percent off Lone Wolf tree stand. Uh, you know, that's that's a pretty big deal. Um, and then Bowhunter Box Club, same thing. They've got some uh, really cool stuff coming up. they got a full draw box that's uh, $225 worth of value for about $125, and that's coming out now in March. And, uh, again, we're still working on having Jason on here, but um, check out all our stuff, Bowhunter Box Club, uh, there, and use code CHRONICLES, and then uh, bowhunterchroniclespodcast.com on Facebook, and uh, follow us on Instagram. So I think that's pretty much all we got for today, right? Yeah. 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 Well, thanks a lot, Mark, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you in the future. Look forward to it.